thanks for checking out the KZMC podcast. My name is April Zaire, and I'm an associate pastor at KZMC. This podcast is a recording of sermon teachings from our 9.30 a.m. Sunday morning worship gatherings. We release a new episode every Tuesday. If you're looking to check out our Sunday mornings, you can find our live stream over on our YouTube channel on Kingsfield Zurich Mennonite Church. We'd also love to have you join us in person. You can find out all the details about our Sunday mornings on our website, kzmc.ca. Thanks for listening, and have a great day. We, so in Revelation chapter 2, we find the first of seven letters to the churches, and the first letter is written to the church at Ephesus. And for the most part, this is an encouraging letter. It's a, it's a letter of praise and thanksgiving. In Revelation chapter 2, verse 4, Verse 2, it says, I know your deeds, your hard work, and your perseverance. But then in verse 4, Jesus says, and remember, these are Jesus' words to the church. Jesus says to this church, yet I hold this one thing against you. You have forsaken your first love. You have forsaken your first love. Now, I think we can fairly easily understand that Jesus isn't talking about romantic love between childhood sweethearts. He's not talking about the romantic love that 34 years ago stood in the justice of the peace office, even with bell bottoms. <laughs> this is a reminder about what we put first in our lives. This is Jesus reminding the church what has to come first for every one of us. This is the relationships and the practices that we put first in our lives. And from time to time, it's good for us to pause. It's good for us to reflect, and even better, to ask Jesus to help us to reflect on what it is that we have in the first place of our lives. So when we encounter the disciples in John chapter 21, it's in the first couple of days after Easter Sunday. The resurrection has happened probably within a week of this story taking place. And the disciples are still reeling from their experience of what they had walked through with Jesus. So just a couple of weeks before, they had been with Jesus when he had seated himself on a, on a donkey and he had ridden into Jerusalem. They had seen the, the, the crowds rip off palm branches from the trees and begin to wave those. They had seen people throw their cloaks on the road while Jesus rode by on a donkey. It was the, the entrance of a king. It was royalty. It was the... the, the absolute ultimate in what Jesus had, had experienced with his disciples. And the disciples rightfully thought that this was it, that this was where Jesus was going to be exalted, that this was where Jesus would finally claim the kingdom of God. And yet just a few days later, they were there with Jesus in the garden when he was sweating blood because of the anguish that he was experiencing about what he was about to experience where he was sweating blood and saying, Father, if this cup can be taken from me, please do that. But not your will. Not my will be done, but yours. And then they watched, they watched as, as Judas came and kissed him and betrayed him, and, and then all of them ran away. All except for John, who was there the next day at the cross with Jesus' mom the only disciple to make it, the only disciple who stood there with the women at the cross. 
And so here it is a, a few days later, and the disciples, yes, they encountered Jesus on, on that resurrection morning, but they still didn't understand what was going on. They were still behind locked doors. They still didn't understand what the, all of this could mean for them. And so Peter says, I'm going fishing. Peter goes back to what he knew. They had spent three years with Jesus, night and day. Heard him teach, saw him heal, saw the way in which he cared for people, saw the way in which he drew in both the insiders and the outsiders. They even had the opportunity to go out and try this themselves. Jesus offered them the opportunity to go, and, and they were able to go into the towns and villages around, and they were able to see the, the devil falling from heaven. They saw people healed. They, they saw miraculous things happen because of the name of Jesus. But here in the days after the horror of what they had witnessed on Good Friday, and in the absolute surprise of Easter Sunday, these seven disciples go back to what they know. They go back to fishing. And the Gospel of John is filled with all kinds of intriguing detail. It's, it's, John felt it was necessary to leave us these sort of breadcrumbs all through this Gospel of things that we could go deeper on and things that we could explore and, and dive into. And it's a lot of fun doing this in a Bible study, Bible study space where you're just sitting with the text and, and following all of the strands that John is putting in, in place for us and to dig into all the different places where John is going. And John chapter 21 is no exception. For example, here, John points out that there are seven disciples. Seven disciples. Well, at this point, there would have been 11. Judas was gone, but the other 11 would have still been there. So where were the other guys? There's only seven. But for biblical reasons, John puts this number seven there as a reminder that seven is the number of completion in the Bible the number of perfection. And so something is happening here. Something is going to take place in the story, so pay attention. And then the number three plays a role. In verse 14, it says that this was now the third time that Jesus had appeared to his disciples. Three was important. And it was then on this third visit of Jesus, this third time that Jesus meets with the disciples, that Jesus has three critical questions for Peter. And John recreates this scene for us in vivid detail. When the, disciples, when the disciples get to shore, I mean, first something miraculous happens that should have been a reminder for them. They've been out all night fishing, and what does the story say? They, they caught nothing. That's happened before, hasn't it? Like, we should be sort of scratching our heads and saying, ah, did you guys just repeat the same story again? No, this is the second time this has happened. The disciples have been out fishing all night, caught nothing, and then in the morning, Jesus is standing on the shore and saying, guys, throw your net on the other side. This time the disciples obey immediately. They don't question, well, what do you know about fishing? They throw their nets on the other side, and the net is full of fish. And as soon as that net fills with fish, it's John who turns to Peter and says, it's the Lord. It's the Lord there on the lakeshore waiting for us. Peter gets himself dressed. He puts on his cloak. The text says that he was naked in the boat. So he puts his cloak back on, jumps into the water, runs or swims rather to shore, gets to the shore, and there is Jesus standing by a charcoal fire. He's already got some fish on it and some bread. 
standing by a charcoal fire, waiting for them. Now, what must Peter have been thinking? What must Peter have been thinking when he was standing there in front of this breakfast that Jesus had prepared for the disciples? I'm sure the other disciples were standing back and thinking, now, wait a minute, we just pulled the fish in and he's already got some. How does this work? Like, where did he get his fish from? Where did the bread come from? Where did, where did this... And they're scratching their heads. But what about Peter? What was Peter thinking? Here, standing at this charcoal fire, I'm sure Peter knew exactly what was happening. There are only two instances in all of the New Testament where a charcoal fire is mentioned. It's here in John chapter 21 and in John chapter 18 when Peter denies Jesus three times. Those, those are the only two times that a charcoal fire is ever mentioned in the New Testament. The scene is unmistakable. And you've got to wonder, is Peter expecting a rebuke? Is he expecting Jesus to say, I told you so. I told you you were going to deny me. But instead, Jesus invites Peter to come to the fire and takes him back to the very first time that they met each other. Takes him back to the very first time that they encountered one another and began their relationship with one another. And he calls him by his given name, Simon, son of John. Remember that Peter, that Jesus had given Peter his name. He had said to him, Peter, uh, on this rock I will build my church. Remember that story? Well, he takes Peter right back to the beginning before he was called Peter and says, Simon, son of John. And then the question, do you love me more than these? They're standing there by that charcoal fire for a second time, and Peter is invited to recall his journey with Jesus right from the very beginning. He's reminded of where he came from as a fisherman. He's reminded of this journey that he's been on with Jesus, what he has seen, what he has heard, everything that he's been through with Jesus. He's reminded of his bold confession when, Peter, when, when Jesus asked Peter, so who do the people say that I am? And the disciples all gave sorts, some sorts of answers. And then Jesus asked, well, what about you? Who do you say that I am? And it was Peter who jumped up and said, well, you're the Messiah. You're Jesus. You're, you're the King of Kings. You're the Savior. Only to, have him, only to have Jesus rebuke Peter a couple of minutes later, saying, get behind me, Satan, because Peter didn't understand the implications of what it meant for Jesus to be the Messiah. But standing here at that fire, the memory that's likely playing the loudest in Peter's mind was his denials around that other charcoal fire. And then comes Jesus' question. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? We're not told what the these are. It's interesting if you think about it. What are the these that Jesus is talking about here? Is he, is he pointing at the fish that Peter has brought in, the net that he's pulled in, and said, do you love me more than your job? Your old job? Maybe he's pointing at the other disciples and saying, do you love me more than these? 
But we're not told. We, we don't know what Jesus was referring to when he says, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And maybe that's the point. Because this is a question that we can ask of ourselves. What are the these that are competing with my, or, or threatening my love or my loyalty to Jesus? What has the first place? What holds the place of first love in my life? Is it my job? Is it my family? Is it my bank account or my investments, my retirement savings? Is it a dream of a better life? What is it that holds the first place in my life? Kevin introduced me before and said that we have four sons. Malachi, Jonah, Elijah, and Nehemiah. It's a for-profit for venture. But I'll tell you, if you want to know what the place of first love is in your life, ask your kids. They'll tell you. They'll tell you what you've got first in your life, and it can be the most humbling experience of your life to this point. Because they'll see things with clarity that maybe you're not seeing. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? See, putting success first will eventually destabilize you. Putting money or notoriety or security or popularity or safety or looks or talent, trust me, all of these things will eventually crumble. All of them will eventually fail. Your children will grow up and they'll move on to lives of their own. They might call you. Hopefully they stop by every once in a while. But they'll have lives of their own. Your face will eventually develop wrinkles. Your hair might fall out. Your knees are going to start to hurt. This hair used to be brown. And we have no idea what the financial markets will do. So if we put our first love in these places, they're bound to fail. So Jesus asks Peter, do, you, do I have the place of first love in your life? Do I have the first place in your heart? And you can imagine Peter cringe when he hears the question because a few months before a few months before when Peter had this all figured out and Peter was the the leader of the disciples and Peter was the first one to to shout out that Jesus was the Messiah a few months ago Jesus had Peter had this all figured out he knew who Jesus was he even says in John 13 verse 37 I would lay down my life for you when referring to Jesus but this Peter knows better. This Peter knows that he doesn't measure up. And so I imagine the response was a very cautious, maybe even quiet, just, just above a whisper, when he says, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And then come the words of commissioning, then feed my lambs. And then the question comes a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And a third time, do you love me? And each time Peter responds to Jesus, and then Jesus offers words of commissioning. Take care of my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then Jesus ends this discourse 
he ends this discourse of reconciliation and reinstatement with exactly the same words that began their relationship three years before. Follow me. Follow me. Now we could spend all kinds of time uh, with this text. As I said before, John leaves us all kinds of breadcrumbs to, to dive into. And looking specifically at the different words for love, for example, in this text is an interesting study. There's different words for love that Jesus, use, Jesus uses in each time that he asks Peter his question. Do you love me? And while it's an interesting study, it's secondary to the question of what you or I have in the place of first love in our lives. But it all begins with that simple and gut-wrenching question, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? So there's no point in talking about practical ways to live a life on mission if we can't or we won't come face to face with this question that Jesus asks Peter three times around a charcoal fire. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Does Jesus have the place of first love in our church? Does Jesus have the place of first love in our hearts? Does Jesus have the place of first love in our families? Does Jesus have the place of first love in our marriages? Does Jesus have the first place? Simon, son of John, do you love me more than any of these? You see, when we can answer this question with, with a yes, with a resounding yes, then something amazing begins to happen. See, if the gospel story ended right here, if it ended in John chapter 21, and we didn't have anything else, if it ended right after the words, follow me, we would be left to wonder, was Jesus successful in his discipleship? Did this work? See, we've read these gospels, and the disciples are, you know, they're sort of getting it, but they still don't fully understand what's going on. And here at the end, Jesus even has to take the, the, the leader of his disciples, pull him aside, and reinstate him, reconcile with him, because he denied him three times. He probably had the biggest failure of the bunch. If the gospel story ended here, we could safely say that Jesus' attempt at discipleship was a failure. After all, even after three years in close community and intense discipleship training, when the disciples faced adversity, they went back to what they knew. They went back to fishing. Instead of inviting the world into the discipling relationship that they had experienced with the Lord. But that's not the end of the story. Thankfully, the Gospels don't end there. The Bible doesn't end there. And we can keep flipping pages in our Bibles. And we get to Acts chapter 1, and there's something that amazing that begins to happen here. Jesus says, wait. He says, there's one more thing that I want you to do. In Acts chapter 1, we get this, this commissioning piece. There's a commissioning in Matthew, but there's also this commissioning in Acts where Jesus says, I want you to be my people. I want you to be the leaders of this movement that I'm creating, but you're going to start in Jerusalem, and then you're going to move to Samaria, to, to Judea, Samaria, and then the ends of the earth. 
But I want you to wait for one more thing because there's one more thing that you need, one more thing that will pull all of the strands of what we've been working on together. They'll they'll pull this all together and you'll start to understand. That one thing is the Holy Spirit. So when the winds blow at Pentecost and the tongues of fire begin to dance, a divine inspiration flows through the disciples and they finally get it. They finally understand it. All of the stuff that they've heard from Jesus just sort of comes together and gels in that moment and they understand what's going on. Three years of learning from the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. Three years of taking timid steps to imitate the the Word who had become flesh. The same Word who had set the foundations of the universe. And after three years of information and imitation, Jesus asks them to wait for inspiration. There's a great line in Acts chapter 5, verse 13. It's just a small verse, something that you probably pass over very quickly while you're reading it. But it's this great line in Acts chapter 5, verse 13. It says, some people already understood that joining the apostles was risky business. See, this group of misfit disciples whom Jesus had called from all sorts of backgrounds and all sorts of lifestyles had a, had a new calling. And they had a new sort of light bulb moment of clarity on that day of Pentecost. And they understood that putting Jesus first in their lives would enable them to live into the truth that Paul declares in Ephesians chapter 3. In Ephesians chapter 3, Paul begins in verse 10. He says that now through the church, now through the church, the manifold wisdom of God should be made known to the rulers and the authorities uh, of the heavenly realms. So what is this mystery? What is this mystery that Paul is referring to? It's the same mystery that the disciples finally understood, that through the cross and through the empty tomb, you and I are heirs together with Israel. That you and I are members together of one body. That you and I are together are sharers in the promise and the salvation found only in Jesus Christ. The realization that the church was called to reveal this mystery drove Paul to his knees. And in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14 and following, Paul prays that all of us, that all of us as followers of Christ would be strengthened with the power of the Holy Spirit. So that through that strengthening, Christ could take up full residence in our hearts, in our lives. That Christ would dwell in your heart through faith because the church is only as effective as it is rooted in Jesus. And in that faith, being rooted and established in Christ, we are filled with the power to realize how wide and how long and how high and how deep is the love of Christ, filling us with the fullness of God. So can you see the crescendo that Paul is building to here? It's it's as though if he was preaching this or, or praying this or however this text came out of him, 
it's, it's as though he's getting louder and louder and more excited and more excited as he's sharing these words because he says, strengthened by the power of the Spirit, rooted and established in Christ, filled with the fullness of God, now, now recognize and live into the power and the truth and the awesome blessing that God is able to do immeasurably more than all you ask or imagine because of the power that is at work within who? Within us. He's not saying because of the power that's at work within the government or because of the power that's at work within society or the power that's at work within you as the, the leader of the church or your pastor or the deacons or the elders or whoever. He's saying the power that is at work within us, within all of us, there is this incredible, immeasurable power that is at work within us because God has, has ordained it to be that way. No wonder that by the time that we get to Acts chapter 4, Peter and John could stand in front of the insults and the accusations of the Sanhedrin and respond with what I believe is a, a real hint of sarcasm when they say in, John, in Acts 4 verse 19, you decide whether God wants us to obey you instead of him. But we can't stop telling everybody about the wonderful things that we saw Jesus do and we heard him say. These guys got it. See, with Jesus in the, in the place of first love in their hearts and in their lives, there was nothing that the Sanhedrin could do that could deter them that, because they had come face to face with the risen Lord. They had witnessed the fullness of the amazing power of God which could even overcome death. And so that even being flogged, even being beaten by the Sanhedrin became a cause for celebration because they had been found worthy to suffer disgrace for the name of Jesus. Now they didn't just miraculously arrive there. The disciples didn't just wake up on Pentecost morning and suddenly arrived there. There was a cycle here, a cycle moving, and, and if Samantha was here drawing for us, she would start to draw a triangle for me, and she would start to map out how this was working. That there was a cycle of information, but then there was also a, an opportunity for imitation. And then finally there was this inspiration, this inspiration that allowed the disciples to innovate into this movement that Jesus had called them into, so that they could live out of the fullness of the life to which Jesus had called them. See, my guess is that most of us know a lot about Jesus. I'm, maybe I'm assuming a lot, but I'm assuming that I'm speaking to a crowd of the converted. Mostly, probably. Probably you're all just as convinced as Peter and John were that salvation is found in no other name than the name of Jesus. But sadly, we often stop there. Sadly, that's as often as far as we go. We fill people with information about Jesus. We tell people about that salvation. We may even get them to, to name a, a conversion moment in their lives, but then we stop. 
When Peter and John stood before the Sanhedrin, they were standing on the foundation of information about Jesus, imitation alongside of Jesus, and the full inspiration of the Holy Spirit that freed them completely to live into the calling to which they had been called. As the church, we are invited and challenged to live into this vision of the threefold functioning of discipleship to come alive among us. These three working in unison, like a three-stranded cord, like the, the unity of the Trinity, strengthened by the power of the Holy Spirit, rooted and established in Christ, filled with the fullness of God. So share information, share the gospel, preach the gospel, worship together, sing songs that, that highlight the gospel, that speak to the truth of the gospel. Do those things, worship together, study together, be, be spending time together in, in the word of God so that you have all of the information that you need about Jesus. But don't stop there. Bring somebody along into your life and let them see how you live this out. Show them the ways in which you wrestle with putting this life of Jesus at work in your life. Pull them alongside of you. Let them walk with you. Let them see your, your, your faults, your failings, and your greatest joys. Because it's in that opportunity to imitate that this word becomes alive. It's in that space where we invite other people to come alongside of us to live life on life with us, exploring what it means to live out a life of salvation. And then finally, drawn together in prayer, calling out and seeking the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. It's an activity that the church is specifically called to do. So this cycle, this three-stranded cord, information, imitation, and inspiration of the Holy Spirit as we see the, through the eyes of Jesus a desire to seek and to save the lost of our communities and of our nation. Acts 5 verse 13 says that some people already realized that joining the apostles was risky business. To live out of the passion and conviction that there is no other salvation than that which is offered in Jesus Christ. To learn in the fellowshipping body to live that conviction in all of our relationships. To hear and be a part of and join in the great chorus of the saints as we call upon the Holy Spirit to fill us with the fullness of God. That, my friends, is risky business that I would love to be a part of together with you. And it all begins when we respond to the invitation and the challenge of Jesus. Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Amen.